Some of you have already got the notes and you're reading them. And so you already know if you've got the notes in front of you. I've given you a longer set of notes today than I'm actually going to say. There's more there because there's 12 pages. Thinking, what? 12 pages? What I'm going to say is shorter than that, I think. <laughs> I hope. Um, because some of the things I'm going to say to you are not easy. I need to kind of defend them with more material, but I've put the material there. and I've got even more if you really are interested to... to why do you say that, David? Okay. Um, and I'm very happy for you to kind of fire questions at me, not all in one go this morning. That would keep us here through a long afternoon. But write them down, email to them, email, text them to me. You can find, uh, if you don't know where else to go, go on our website and you can send an email that goes to mail at that arrives to me anyway. And I'll try and answer questions as we go along because I'm taking you into, for some of you, into unfamiliar territory. I'm going to be unpicking some things you thought you knew. And I, I have to kind of warn you about that. I also have to say, I'm going to say some things which are not easy to hear because I, I commit myself, if I'm reach, preaching through a book of the Bible, to say it all and not avoid the difficult bits. And so there are some difficult bits, and one is this morning, that I need to go through with you. So, Paul in the 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, makes a defense of himself. I'm going to read it through to you. I'm not going to put everything up there. I'd be doing click, click, click all morning if I did that. So, that's not good. So, if you've got a Bible or you've got the notes, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Paul is defending himself. I'll explain why in a minute. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we'd previously suffered... And we were treated outrageously in Philippi. They were beaten and thrown into jail in Philippi. As you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel, good news of God to you, in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become dear to us. For you remember our labour and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you, your witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly, righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why we constantly thank God, because you received the message about God that you heard from us. You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. Paul is defending himself because false brothers, false Christian leaders and ministries, to use that word, had come in to the church in Thessalonica. People went into the churches where Paul had been and sought to draw people away from his influence towards them. Whenever he'd planted and established a church, these kinds of people came in behind him. First of all, Judaizers. People who sought to bring Gentile believers, people who'd been converted out of a Gentile background, not from a Jewish background, not from a, even a proselyte background of a God-fearing Gentile, to bring Gentile believers in Jesus back under the law of Moses with circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, and so on. They often claimed they'd been sent out from Jerusalem by James, the leader of the church there, but that wasn't so. James didn't send them. They were resisting the fact that the kingdom of God had gone from being national, Israel, to being international, the children of God from around the globe. Gentiles can be children of Abraham and heirs of the promises of God simply through faith in Messiah Jesus, without circumcision, without keeping the law of Moses. You do not have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. 
But that is what the Judaizers were going around trying to make happen. And if you read the book of Galatians, Paul is, that's Paul's early and very fierce condemnation of this Judaizing teaching. Some of them claim to be super apostles. Oh, you, those are the ordinary ones. We're the, we're the real ones. Super apostles. You read it in Corinthians. He writes about the super apostles who were coming in amongst them. They claim to have superior knowledge. Or, get this one, superior anointing. We are more anointed than Saul. That's a very, com that's a very common thing today, isn't it? They came in not to feed the flock, but to fleece the flock. To make what they could from them. Some were just straightforward prophets, false prophets and false teachers. So you had false apostles, you had false prophets, you had false teachers. And again, these Christian ministries came into the churches to fleece, to get, to take. So much so that a document written in about AD 100 after the New Testament, so it's, it's early but it's not inspired, it's not scripture, it's called the Didache, the Teaching and Twelve. It says, if someone comes in among you from outside and he claims to be a prophet, claims to be a teacher, and he asks you for money, send him away. If he just wants board and lodging so he can move on his, on his way afterwards, fine. But if he asks for money, send him away. He's a false leader. In Acts 20, Paul writes to the, speaks to the elders of the Ephesians about this. In Timothy and Titus, he writes to those Christian leaders to, and urges them to deal with these issues and with these false brethren, to use the King James. Peter and Jude write in apocalyptic language about the judgment of God upon these false teachers and prophets. And John, in his letter, letters, calls false teaching antichrist and speaks of those who came in with, 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 with doctrine that leads people away from Jesus. And even names one person who sought to exclude John in his older years from influencing the people and wanted to be the kind of the, the boss in the church. Paul is defending himself because this is what happened then. It's still happening today. Do you recognize those trends? Do you recognize those trends? 21st century, same stuff is still happening. He's in good company. Moses and Samuel in the Old Testament had to make similar defences, even challenging people. You tell me where, where, in, which, in which way I've hurt you. How have I robbed you? Have I, have I taken a bribe? And they said, no, you know you haven't. They had to defend themselves. And Paul's aware of the character and the claims and the cunning of these, some of these people. And he's drawing the Thessalonians to remember, how did I behave among you? Did I take your money? Did, 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 did I ask you to work for me or did I work for you? Did I ask you to serve me or did I serve you? And he's drawing comparison, comparison. Do those who claim your loyalty claim money for themselves? Do they serve or do they lord it over the people? Paul describes himself as being like, on the one hand, a nursing mother and on the other like the father, disciplining, bringing correction and encouragement. John Piper wrote a book some years ago called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And it was a plea that, that, that Christian leadership is pastoral and it's more about people and it's more about passion and being a parent than being a professional. Okay, let me sum that down into what I wrote because it's shorter. Christian leadership is more parental than professional. If you're doing the job because it's a job, it's time you got another job if it's Christian leadership. If you're doing the job because it's what pays you, go and get another job. You need to have a passion for people. You need to have a passion for the gospel. Lead, Christian leadership is parental, not professional. A true Christian leader chooses serving over being served. Here's the thing. If you, no, I, I'm not going to stand here and defend myself this morning. Don't worry, I'm not doing that. But if you're going to stand up and defend yourself in those terms, you'd better be clear of those things. But if you've sought to become rich at the expense of others, to live like a king and treat people as your subjects, if you've shown favoritism, used flattery, taken bribes, or treated scripture as a toolbox to advance your career, you don't have a leg to stand on. Don't even dream of defending yourself. And a great deal of modern Christian leadership and ministry needs to be tested against these values, the thesis taught and Paul taught and Paul example. Don't tell me times have changed. That was then, this is now. 
The scriptures speak to all time and every culture and challenge us in every culture. And modern Christianity needs a thorough shake through. Too many pastors and preachers seem to think they're the special ones for whom the other Christians exist. I'm afraid for them because it's a day of accounting coming. I'm afraid for them. Okay, that's, that's Paul's defense. I did that pretty quickly because it's not the main thing. Then he talks about the persecutors. As well as incoming Christian, false Christian leaders and ministries, the early church at this time was also experiencing persecution. There was trouble from outside, persecution, and trouble from inside, false brethren, to use that expression again. And so we go on in 1 Thessalonians 2. I've put a lot of scripture there, but it's all one sentence really. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, You've, since you've also suffered the same things from the people of your own country. He's drawn a comparison here, be, be clear about this. In Thessalonica, this town in northern Greece, they were experiencing persecution from people of their country. And he's drawing a comparison with, with the Christians in Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, who were experiencing persecution from people of their own country. So the Thessalonians were being persecuted mostly by Greeks, but the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea were being persecuted mostly by Jewish people. Let's move on. Just as they, they did, the people in Judea, the Christians in Judea, were being persecuted by the Jews. Now this is where this gets really difficult. Listen to this. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins and wrath has overtaken them at last. Let's jump over to 2 Thessalonians because there's a parallel passage there about persecution. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you're also suffering. They were enduring because they were looking for the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. Since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place. When's this accounting? When's this reward and revenge, you know, going to happen? It is revenge. God is going to revenge himself or put revenge upon those who have afflicted Christians on a certain day. When will that take place? It will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow, what a day. We'll come back to that next time. These, the persecutors, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in the day when he comes to be glorified by saints and to be admired by all those who have believed. I'm stopping in the middle of a verse there, but never mind. This will take place. The early church endured much persecution. The New Testament is written in these times. Christians were assured by the apostles visiting or writing repeatedly. The Lord would reward those who endured in faith who would not did not deny him he would reward them but he would bring vengeance upon those who had afflicted them that's the main point point here persecutors and oppressors will bear in due time the judgment and wrath of god for the thessalonians it was those who afflict you there probably the greek and roman authorities but also sadly the local synagogue but those who were causing suffering to the Christians, the believers in Judea, were the Jewish authorities. So Paul makes this comment about the Jews. And the words there fall hard upon modern ears. But we need to understand the 21st century context. The Jews who killed Jesus, persecuted the prophets and persecuted the apostles are now causing harm to the churches. Israel, the Jewish nation, in particular the leaders or authorities of the nation, indeed did have that history. They had rejected and persecuted and killed God's messengers, the prophets, throughout Old Testament history. They'd rejected and killed Jesus, Messiah, 
Peter fearlessly stood up on the day of Pentecost and says that to the crowd, that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. Later, Stephen was stoned by the Jerusalem authorities when he charged them with the same responsibility. And now, across the Roman Empire, synagogues and others were resisting the gospel of Jewish of Jesus Messiah and his kingdom going to the Gentiles. And wherever the gospel went, the synagogues quickly became the centers of opposition. Paul says they were adding to their sin and guilt and the day of reckoning was coming. Now Jesus himself spoke about these things. Jesus talked, and did this in chronological order. And again, the references are there in your notes. Jesus told a story just as he's going into Passion Week, going back into Jerusalem and he's going to be killed on the end of that week, yes. He told a story about a vineyard, its owner and workers who were given charge of his vineyard. And he's saying this story to the Jerusalem authorities. He sends messengers to these workers, these, these officials who are over the vineyard. And they kill every messenger he sends. Lastly, he sends his son and says, I'll send my son. They'll listen to him. But they kill the son too. So Jesus asks this question and he's addressing the Jerusalem authorities. He says, when the owner comes, what will the owner do to those servants? And they answer, not understanding what he's pointing to really. Oh, he'll kill them and he'll give the vineyard to someone else. And Jesus says, that's right. He said, he will completely destroy those terrible men. And he says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing its fruit. During his last week, traveling from Bethany up to Jerusalem every day and going in and out of the temple, on the one morning, Jesus saw a fig tree and went to it and it had no fruit on it. And he cursed it. And when they came back, it was withered from the roots. And the disciples said to him, how did you do that? And he said, by faith. They should have asked, why did you do that? Because this fig tree is a symbol of the, of the nation of Israel. Leaving the temple towards the end of that week, the disciples are going, wow, the temple, wow, look, it's, wow, it's amazing. Jesus said to them, you see all these things? I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. So they, when they get a bit away, they ask him, well, when, when's, that, when's all that going to happen? And, and when, when are you going to come into your kingdom? And so in what we call the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13, Jesus answers those two questions. The problem is they are two different questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And, and, and these warnings you've been giving, when is that going to happen? And, and by the way, at the same time, they think it's the same thing the same time. When are you going to come into your kingdom? When, when are you going to, you know, when, when, does, when does the end of the age come? And so it's not an easy passage of scripture to go into the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. And recognize that some of the things are what Jesus is talking about, what was going to happen soon and what was going to happen a long time later. Because a lot of prophecy in scripture is like looking at two things like this. Yeah? There's one going, they're different things. But the fact is, you're looking at them and there's, you can't see the gap in between. That gap in between might be 400 years, might be 1,000 years, might be 2,000 years, might be even more, but you can't see the gap. So you, because the, the prophet is just saying these things out and they, you, you need to figure that out. Here's what Jesus said as he comes out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. There's passion, pathos in the heart of Jesus there. But he says this, see your house is left to you desolate. Whatever else house means there, it meant that it included the temple. The temple was going to be desecrated, destroyed. And I tell you, you'll never see me again until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. So Paul, I've got ahead of myself and I'm winding back, sorry. So Paul in his letter says, the Jewish people are heaping wrath upon themselves and that's not going to be far off now. Now he wrote this in about AD 50, AD 51, and already in Judea there were Jewish uprisings against the Romans. But the Romans being powerful, you know, if there was, a, if there was one town, a little band of brigands, a few guerrillas, you know, that's G-U-E, you know, not G-O, yes, guerrilla movements. By the way, one of those troublemakers was, Barab was, was, was uh, Barabbas who was released in the place of Jesus. He was one of those freedom fighters. All right? 
But the Romans being as powerful as they were, you know, there was one here, they get them and they kill them and they crucify the leader to give an example. They did that again and again, right through the AD 50s, AD 60s, it just went on and on. Uprising, crushed, uprising, crushed, uprising, crushed. But then, in about AD 66, the whole thing went national, all over the land of Judea and Samaria. The Jewish people were rising up against the Romans. It became a national struggle. So Rome, the emperor in Rome was near at the time, sent the most experienced general, General Vespasian, with a huge army to march right the way from the top of Israel, right the way to the bottom, and just wipe this thing out and bring the nation back under Roman control. But it got halted when Nero, who was a thoroughly wicked, some say mad, but I just think he was a thoroughly wicked individual. We haven't time to talk about him. We might have to in a few weeks' time. When he was uh, killed... There was then a kind of like two or three emperors in a space of about four months. were all useless. So the army said, we want Vespasian, the general. They're all useless. They're all wimps. Send him back and make him emperor. So the general went back and became emperor. And he left his son, who was called Titus, to finish the job of this war in Judea. And I'm going to read to you what his son then did. And I, I, this is the this is I got from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, but there's a, there's some good ones around. I've put in the notes to you. In April 70 A.D., about the time of the Passover, <clears throat> the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem. Circles Jerusalem. Jesus said, "When you see Jerusalem circled by armies, happen. When you see when you see the when you see the vultures gather, actually it wasn't vultures; it was eagles. What are the Romans walk in front?" put in front of their soldiers a great big standard with an eagle on top. See the countries nowadays that agree, watch out for any country that has an eagle on top. They're usually bad news. Sorry, I'm getting off the subject. Titus besieged Jerusalem. Since that action coincided with Passover, the Romans allowed pilgrims into the city but refused them to come out. So because there were thousands and thousands of extra people in Jerusalem because it was Passover, the food and the water in Jerusalem quickly began to run out. But the Romans were quite happy because they would starve them out. Within the walls, the zealots, that's the, that the Jewish rebels, a militant anti-Roman party struggled with other Jewish factions that emerged and which weakened the resistance even more. And a man called Josephus, a Jew who'd commanded rebel forces but then defected to the Romans, when was sent in to negotiate a settlement, but because he wasn't trusted by the Romans, by the rebels rather, uh, uh, the talks went nowhere. They shot him with an arrow and he went back to the Romans. The Romans encircled the city with a wall to cut off all supplies and drive the Jews to starvation. And in August of that year, the Romans breached the final defences. There's just a painting of this and massacred much of the remaining population. The place became as the prophets had said, a vision of blood and fire. They destroyed the temple. They set fire to it, although Titus had told them not to. They set fire to it. And so fierce was the fire that gold that was all over the temple ran down between the cracks of the, the walls. So when it had cooled down some days later, guess what the Roman soldiers did? They tore the temple apart stone by stone to get the gold. Not one stone of the main house of the temple was left upon another. Only a part of the outer wall was left. It's the, way, it's the wailing wall is still there today. The loss of the temple for a second time is still mourned by Jews at the feast of Tish Ba'av. And Rome celebrated the fall of Jerusalem by erecting a, an arch to Titus. And if you look closely on there, can you see that Jewish menorah candlestick taken from the temple? That's the celebratory arch in Rome of the fall of Jerusalem under General Titus in AD 70. You can go there and walk around and then go and have a cappuccino afterwards. And so in Scripture, you've got two things overlapping. The fall of Jerusalem, which was going to happen very soon. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until these things are accomplished. And it happened within 30 years or so of Jesus, 40 years, sorry, of Jesus saying that. If, as we think, Jesus was, was crucified and resurrected by AD 30, in AD 70, these things happened. Generation. But two things overlap in a lot of New Testament prophetic scripture. What was about to happen 
in Judea and in the Roman Empire and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. For Christians at that time, they wouldn't have, seen, they wouldn't have understood the world isn't about to end, although a bit of the world was going to be about to end in, in, a, in a terrible time of trouble. They expected the two things to come together. Let me read to again to you this to Thessalonians. Evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. It's God's right, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to reward with rest those who afflicted with us. But this next bit, when is God going to punish all the oppressors of all the Christians? Well, he didn't then because it's carried on since, isn't it? Do you know there are 50 countries in the world in which it is, it is it's completely, thoroughly dangerous to be a Christian? They will oppress you. They'll even, some of them, try to kill you. 50, 50 countries where to be a Christian is a dangerous business. When's God going to avenge all of that? Well, he hasn't done it yet, has he? When's it going to take place? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his powerful angels, bringing flaming, flaming fiery vengeance against those, and so on. That has not happened, has it? No. No. So, we know what did happen in that generation. The Jewish nation sadly was overthrown by the Romans. The temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. Now, in saying these things, listen to me very carefully. I am making no comment at all about any further history concerning the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. I'm, I'm simply saying that's what happened then and fulfilled what Jesus and the prophets had said. All right? God forbid that I, you would think, imagine I'm saying that's going to happen again. I am not saying that. I did not say that. I'm relating to you how history shows us these things were fulfilled. But that, terrible as it was, judgment of God, yes, but it wasn't the last day. The resurrection of the dead did not take place. The new heaven and the earth did not come. Jesus did not reveal himself from heaven. He was not, he did not come personally and visibly, did he? <clears throat> so the day of judgment which is also the day when he comes to be glorified and his saints has not yet come. And notice this. Two Thessalonians again. There's the same day on which all unbelievers, all those who have done evil, all those particularly who have persecuted and abused God's children will be brought to judgment and fiery vengeance. But on that same day, look at verse 10. On the same day, he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who believe. It's the day of glory for the saints and judgment for the wicked. The same day. Now I know a lot of what you've heard in the past puts a knife through there somewhere and says that's two different things. I can't see it. I don't see it. It's the same day. It's the same day. We need to understand that in the Bible history and in Bible prophecy, some things, to quote the King James Version, came to pass. Do you understand? It was prophesied and it happened and it's in the past. But some things are still to come to pass. The problem is you've had uh, in recent history, a lot of people can come into the Bible with, a, with an approach which we call futurism. They think everything is still to happen. And so they are projecting things into the future like Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and a third of the people being killed. And it's like, no, no, no. What a horrid thought. They're predicting things to happen which I am saying to you, I believe have already happened. But this has not happened. Jesus has not returned. We have not been raised with new, new bodies to glorious inheritance with a new heaven and a new earth and God has not judged the world. Yeah? So the truth lies between the extreme of saying it's, it's, all, it's already finished, it's already finished. Do you know there's one point of view that talks about, it's called preterism. It all happened back then, Jesus came, it's all over, this is it. To which I say, this is the eternal age. This is like the new heaven and the new earth, I'm not impressed. The truth lies between the two extremes, if it's all in the future or it's all in the past. 
I believe the truth lies between those two, recognizing what is fulfilled and what is still to come. The old covenant ended, actually ended when Jesus died on the cross, but it was, it was finished off 40 years later when God by, God, by a decision of God, a determination of heaven, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left standing on another. This is the age in which the gospel is going across the nations. People from all nations are being gathered into the kingdom of Jesus. This is the time when he's reigning. He is reigning until every enemy is under his feet. And then he'll have finished reigning. And then we can enter into the eternal age, the age to come. But the day will come. And it is a day. It is one day. The last day. Now, many of you are thinking, well, what about the rapture, David? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to upset you, some of you. I know I was taught the same thing as secret rapture, but I don't see it in Scripture. Indeed, the very verses then in Thessalonians we go through that some people say, say, say that. I will show you don't say that at all because you're taking a verse out of context and you're splitting between verses where they flow on. These verses here, just the ones we looked at today, clearly state on one day and the same day the Lord Jesus will reveal from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance and on that same day he's going to be glorified and admired by his saints who have believed. It's the same day. Now that's the... It's too small for you to see, but that's, the, that's what I was taught when I was younger, popular view of the end times, uh, present church age, and then quite suddenly there's a rapture of the church. We all disappear. We're gone. An aircraft fall and, you know, there's driverless cars, not the ones run by robots, you know, but driverless cars go off the motorway because all the Christians are gone, man. And then the, there's other people who are left behind. You've, you've, you've kind of heard that. There's books and movies, you know, the left behind thing. And then there's like seven years of trouble, tribulation, and the stuff that I've been talking to you about that happened in AD 70, people project into that time there. They say that's when all of that happens around Jerusalem and so on. I mean, no, 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 no. And then Jesus visibly returns, and then for some people there's a thousand-year reign. Well, I don't, I don't even believe in a literal thousand-year reign to come. I believe that's the gospel age we're in, but we'll come to that another time. And then finally, finally, at the end of that thousand years, there's the final judgment and the eternal state. My problem with all of that is people get raised from the dead one, two, three, even four times. And Jesus quotes returns at least one, two, or three times. Yeah? Here's the scripture that people usually quote. Yeah, but what about the one will be taken and the other will be left? That, you know, that, that's the left behind bit. You know, some are taken and some are left. Okay, let's go to it. It's in, in that Oliver discourse, Jesus is talking to the disciples about things that are going to happen and things that are going to happen a long time further. He talks about the days of Noah and of Lot. Yes? And he'll say it'll be just the same as it was in the days of Noah and of Lot. Okay? One will be taken, another left. The language of taken and left is taken from the Old Testament scriptures when prophets like Zephaniah and Zechariah prophesied an invading army is going to come and sweep over you and, 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 and they're going to be indiscriminate in who they take and who they leave. Get this, the people who were taken were killed or taken into captivity. The people who were left were left where they were in somewhat peace, but at least they were alive. Taken and left is, in Scripture, the opposite of the way people have made it into. Right? You're taken to captivity, to destruction. You're left with what you have, with your inheritance, with your land, with your possessions. The Day of Judgment came in those times. So the whole left behind theory, and I've got one of them under me, look at that, the aircraft crashing down between the towers, towers in New York, wherever it is. The whole left behind theory has it the wrong way around. You're left alive or you're taken to death or captivity. Let me just uh, point you out as well, in the parable of the weeds, that's weeds, not you know, the stuff people smoke. In the parable of the weeds, weeds being sown amongst the good, good grain in a field. Jesus gives a parable and then he gives an explanation. 
I'm just going to hit, the, hit you with the explanation from verse 37. They asked the, the, the disciples said, explain to us this parable of the weeds. You know, the, the, uh, the, um, the, these, these weeds are sown amongst the, the good seed and then workers take the weeds out and then gather the seed home. I mean, what, do, what are you talking about? He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Now, sons, there's inclusive language, ladies. Don't be put off by that. The sons and daughters, if you like. But actually, biblically, we're all sons, and that we're all heirs of God. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is, listen to this, the end of the age. The end of the world. The end of time. The last day. Therefore, the harvest is ended in the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Listen to this. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. Who are the people being taken? The sinful people. The unbelieving people. They will, be th- they will throw them into a burning furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears to hear should hear. So the wicked are taken out and the righteous inherit their et- the eternal kingdom of their father. They shine like the sun in his kingdom. We'll come back to that again later in the book of Thessalonians. But I have to say to you, the left behind theory is science fiction in books and movies, it isn't Bible doctrine. And the whole thought of there being a secret coming of Jesus that snatches Christians away was completely unknown until the 1830s. Never been heard of until the 1830s. When somebody, and I'm summarizing a little story here, someone literally dreamed it up. So let me appeal finally on this to the words of Jesus. I say finally because this is this bit final and then we go on to something else. There is one day of resurrection, the last day. Uh, The Lord Jesus in in John 5 and then John 6 talks about how he will raise the dead. In John 5 he says, there's an hour now when those who are dead hear the voice of the Son of God and come to life. How many of you know that that's true of you? You came to life through faith in Jesus. You heard, him, you heard him speak to you. You knew he, it wasn't just the preacher's words, it was his word. That's what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians. You didn't receive it as the word of a man, you received it as the word of God. So Jesus himself called you to life. That's happening now, folks. But there's a day coming, he says, and he's very specific now, when all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come to life. Those who've done the good will be a resurrection of life. Those who've done evil will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. You notice that? One day in which he calls all who are in the graves, all the dead, to live again, and some go to glory and some to condemnation. So it's one day which has two outcomes. One calling which has two outcomes. And then in John 6, and I'm just going to paraphrase it for the sake of time, three times over in John 6, Jesus makes this statement. I will raise him up on the... Thank you, Joe and others. You've heard me say this before. Jesus does not promise me he's going to raise me from the dead. I might die before Jesus comes, but there you go. That's fine. He does not promise me he'll raise me from the dead 1,000 years before the last day or 1,003 and a half years before the last day or 1,007 years before the last day. He promises he will raise me up from the dead on the last day. So whatever scheme you want to put into these things about the end times, the last day means the last day. And I cannot take on any system that pulls that apart and says he doesn't mean that. I can't do it. It stays firm with me. I have to look at the other scriptures, the other writings, the apostles say, yeah, but Jesus says this, I will raise him up on the last day. And that, for me, is stuck with me for most of my life. The Lord Jesus, but there, by the way, in case you, someone tries to wait, doesn't say that in the last days, he says the last day. He doesn't say in the last days, he says on the last day. 
Next time we go to the very core of what these scriptures mean. When we come across a word, it's a Greek word, parousia. It means the arrival of the king. And in the Roman Empire days, in fact before then, the Greek times, uh, the king himself very often, or maybe he'd send a messenger, but the town had to prepare. They knew the king was arriving. They prepared for the arrival, the parousia of the king. And do you know what they did when he arrived? They gave him a crown they'd made for him. What do our hymns say? Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon the throne. Why? Because when he comes, we can want to give him a crown. Anyway, it's Perusia. And the, the place gets ready. You know, they make things ready for the queen when she's coming, don't they? How much more for King Jesus? So the Perusia, it, it's about being ready for his arrival. Today, I want to return very briefly to 1 Thessalonians 2 for this bit of life application. Paul says about himself, as you know, like a father with his own children, these is the weak, you know. We encouraged you. Comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Beyond the troubles, beyond the false brethren, beyond the persecutions, God had called them, God calls you to his kingdom and his glory. For something that is far better than what you know and have now. And here's the, here's the, the silly thing that afflicts us, many of us even as Christians, we are so fascinated with now and with earning the money to pay the bills, to buy this, to do that, that we forget about our calling. It's huge. We get to inherit the world. A new heaven and a new earth, full of beauty and full of goodness and nothing evil in it. Paul says, walk worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy. Walk there just means way of life. Your whole way of life doesn't literally just mean mean walking. It means the way you process through the whole of your life, in every area of your life. Do it worthy of God. The truth about the Lord's return is not just a matter of theory. The Holy Spirit through these scriptures calls us to anticipate and prepare for God's kingdom and God's glory. The coming of the king to usher us into his kingdom. To be prepared for that day, that moment. To live a whole life which is prepared for that day. Not on the basis, well I better be really, really careful because he might come sneakily in a minute's time and I won't be ready. Or give me some clues, Pastor, how long have I got before I need to get ready? The The answer is today. We're to live every day as the last day, even if it isn't the last day. Walking worthy of our calling to his kingdom and glory. And Paul talks about the way he walked in verse 10. He says he walked devoutly, his conduct towards the Lord. He walked righteously, his conduct towards others, doing the right thing in the right way. And blamelessly his conduct before others. They could watch the way he lived and there was nothing to blame him for. Except, Paul says in another place, my faith and obedience to Christ Jesus. If you want to criticise me for my conviction of the truth and and, and my obedience to him, then go ahead and criticise me. He says that in another place. Blameless before others. It's a noble example for us. It's the life we're called to. And as we live this kind of life, we're preparing for the life which is to come. The Christian who really believes in the second coming of Jesus lives devoutly, righteously and blamelessly in this present age, anticipating the future age. Devoutly, by our being devoted, sorry, devoutly comes from devoted, devoted to the master, living a Christ-centered life with rhythms and routines of faith and obedience towards him. You know, if something matters to you, you have to form a habit of it, don't you? Yeah? Like doing Pilates or cleaning your teeth? Or... You have to form the habit. If it's good for you. We need to have Christian habits. Habits of Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, seeking God's presence, confessing our faults that are good for us, that keep us close to him. Devote, devoutly, devoted to him. 
living a God-focused, God-centered life. Righteously in our conduct towards others. That means being upright and honest, truthful, just, merciful, generous, kind. Because these things matter. The way we behave towards other people really matter. Righteously. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Righteous way of life. And then to live blamelessly in our conduct towards other people. We give no ground for criticism other than the fact I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed to say it and live it. You want to criticize me for my views about Scripture? Go ahead. You want to criticize me for the fact you know, you know, that I believe this Bible to be true? Go ahead. But uh, I should not be open to the criticism of, you know, um, I'm, I'm acting uh, with flattery or I'm taking bribes or I'm being deceitful or hypocritical. Or, uh, if, you know, any of, if there's any of that that needs to be dealt with. That's why Christian leaders particularly need to be accountable. They need people who can say to them, whoa, 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 mm. come on, let's, 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 let's kick this straight. Yeah? Blamelessly. If people hate or hurt us for our faith and obedience in the Lord, we are to rejoice in that day because we're just honoring him. They did the same to the prophets, they did the same to Jesus, they did the same to the apostles in the early church. They're doing the same today to our brothers and sisters in nations around the world and far more fiercely and fatally than we see anywhere near here. If we suffer for his name, not because we've done something wrong. Paul Peter says if you've suffered for doing wrong, you get all you deserve. But if you suffer for his name's sake, rejoice. Rejoice. That reminds me of another place where Paul says this, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness, things that are displeasing to God and unlike God. And worldly desires, and now we don't need to list those. And to live, and he does another three words here, sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I haven't finished. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing, that's the same word there, parousia, the arrival of the king of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, every bit of law-breaking we used to do. God's law, that is, not British law. And to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This life we live now is training and preparing for the life to come or the life of eternity, the life in the completed kingdom with the presence of our God and Father and of our Lord Jesus. This life is where we invest in things that have eternal value and they are part of our eternal inheritance. We don't just squander our time, our money, our efforts, even our love. We invest for something that has eternal value. The Lord will reward all who have lived by faith, trusting and obeying him, but he'll judge the unbelieving and disobedient on that day, that one day yet to come. Live each day in the light of that day, the last day, the day of the Lord. And we don't do that by becoming experts in theories and flicking through our Bible and making, uh, changing our chart, you know. We do it by living Godward, peoplewood lives of integrity and faith and truth and kindness. To God devoted to people, servanthood. To God, praise, worship, love, devotion, obedience. To people, Kindness, generosity, justice, honesty, truthfulness. That is how we prepare for that day. Amen. 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 Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, you sent your son.
into the world, not at that time to condemn the world, but through, through him we might be saved. We so thank you for that. That he who believes in him is not condemned. Though he who has not believed is condemned already because he hasn't believed. We thank you, Lord, that the scripture tells us that there's a good reason why we haven't yet seen Jesus return because he hasn't finished saving the world yet. He's still gathering in believers. He's still showing mercy. The day of grace is still continuing one day after another until in your wisdom it's time to stop. And so we, we pray that understanding some of these things will be like a, a medicine in our hearts that purges what is wrong and feeds what is good. That stops us being silly with some things in life and keeps us living sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. May your truth shape our thinking and therefore our living, we pray. So we're not just like everyone else around us who don't believe in you and haven't a clue what's going to happen. But we are not only able to talk about the end of the world and the end of the age, but we are looking forward to it because it will be the day of our promotion into your eternal presence. Lord Jesus, captivate our hearts, we pray. Teach us what devotion is. Help us to embrace the habits that strengthen it and deny ourselves those things that weaken it. To be devoted to our Master and our Saviour, to our God. We pray that we might even now, when we can't see you, as we will one day, we will nevertheless still be those who are pursuing your presence, who are eager again and again to taste and see that you are good. We devote themselves to you, to your causes, to follow you, to obey you, to do whatever you ask us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.